Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen continues her series of discussions with Michael Trout with a deep dive into his first video, 1997's Gentle Transitions. All of Michael Trout's videos and books are available at the TKC store at tkcchattock.org. Get a 20% discount on all Michael Trout materials when you type Trout20 at checkout. That's T-R-O-U-T in the number 20. This is Karen Buckwalter, and I am delighted to be having Michael Trout coming back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast for another series. This series will actually be about a variety of resources that he has produced. We're first going to focus on his videos, and uh, then later we will be focusing on some of his books. So I would like to, for listeners who don't know about Michael and his work, share a bit about his background. Michael has degrees in both philosophy and psychology, and he was uh, trained with Selma Freiberg in infant psychiatry as part of the Child Development Project of the University of Michigan Department of Psychiatry. He's been in the infant mental health field since 1968 and in private practice since 1979. Since 1986, he has directed the Infant Parent Institute, which is an institute engaged in research, clinical practice, and clinical training related to problems of attachment. He was the founding president of both the Michigan and the International Associations of Infant Mental Health, was on the charter editorial board of the Infant Mental Health Journal, served as regional vice president for the United States for the World Association of Infant Mental Health, and served on the board of directors and as editor of the newsletter of the the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. In 1984, Michael won the Selma Freiberg Award for significant contributions to needs of infants and their families. In addition to publishing a number of book chapters and journal articles, Michael Trout has produced 16 clinical training videos that are used by universities and clinics around the world, including a six-hour video training series called The Awakening and Growth of the Human, Studies in Infant Mental Health. He has also written and produced five videos focusing on the unique perspective of babies on divorce, adoption, loss, domestic violence, and parental incarceration. And in fact, these videos are going to be the focus of the first part of this new series I'm doing with Michael Trout. So he comes to us with a wealth of wisdom and experience, and Michael has become a good friend of mine as well as such a respected colleague and mentor. He's one of the most influential people in my professional life by far, and I'm just delighted to be opening a new series with him today. So here we go.
So hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. And we are continuing our series on the podcast with Michael Trout. So welcome back again today, Michael. Good morning. So yesterday we we started our journey in looking at the various videos that you have created, produced, written, I mean, just all of it, um, and kind of gave our listeners an overview of each of the videos, which I think was really helpful in, in terms of giving context for this conversation we're going to continue to have. Today we're going to talk about the first, the first one that you made of this kind. Um, and that is the video, Gentle Transitions, a newborn baby's point of view about adoption. And I know that this came out in 1997 and it's one of the shorter one, it's 12 minutes, it's about 12 minutes. So um, I'd like to just hear, you know, first I would like if you could take yourself back to that moment when you conceived the idea, you know, we talked about yesterday, you know, a little bit how you conceive the idea about video would be powerful, but how about specific to this? Why start with this? Well, as would turn out to often happen with creation of any of these films, the, the idea uh, and the activity was born out of a, a desperation of some kind or another. I was invited to speak to a, a national congress on uh, foster care and adoption and um, found myself feeling a little pathetic about the notion of standing in front of such a large group of thoughtful people about a topic that I consider to be profound and unsettling and without easy answers and which the literature at the time found to be easily subject to research and subject to lots of easy answers. And I, I, had, a, I had a message of sorts to give, but it was a, a, a strange message. It was only that it's about time we started asking babies what they think about adoption. And so out of that desperation, um, struggling desperately to write a paper that would be meaningful to this audience, it dawned on me that showing them something visual, something that represented what the baby's point of view might be, if we could ask him or her, and if he or she happened to have a voice, um, what, what, would, what would come out of that? So I muddled around with that for months and months and finally came up with this script and then came up with the idea of putting it on film with some music and the words of the script appearing on the screen. It had not yet dawned on me that the next obvious step, which was taken only in the subsequent film produced later that year, the next obvious step would be to look around at my grandchildren and my neighbor kids and see if there were any children who would be willing and able to go into a studio with me and record some of these lines and speak them. And then I would choose some of them to include in the film. So this first film does not have any of those voices. That only occurred to me later that year. One of the things I felt um, torn about as I stood in front of this audience saying, I decided not to talk to you as much today I decided to show you something, and here it is. 
So that was the debut of the film. One of the things I was torn about was that I had not said a word in this film about the parents' point of view. And I didn't want anyone to imagine that that suggested I didn't think parents' point of view was of great import and in fact predicted success or failure sometimes in, in adoption. Uh, but I didn't have room. Uh, and I, there was sort of a message to the audience even in that idea. We can't always get both at the same time. We can listen to parents and, and come to understand the depth of their feeling about such things as a mom saying, I can't get the birth mom out of my mind. Uh, that witch hurt my baby. Or that sweet girl lost her baby and now I've got him. Um, I can't stop thinking about her. That will have a lot to do with how she is able to get on with the job of attaching to this child that she has adopted. And I wanted to speak for those parents, but not here. Right. So this first film is devoted entirely to what I thought babies might say to us if they could. It doesn't take a lot of imagination, having listened to the baby, to begin to listen to parents. But this is just about the baby. Well, and then in the opening uh, brochure about the film, I noticed here it was, you said, the sixth biennial national institution on open adoption. Yes. To prepare some remarks about optimizing the transition of a, of a baby between his or her birth parents and newly adopting parents. And so I, I think two here were looking at, you know, all members of the, the adoption triad and how do we consider them? You're saying I'm privileging or prioritizing the voice of the baby in this, but I think even just this idea of open adoption that, you know, the baby would even know who these people were um, and that we're not just going to uh, air quotes secretly uh, sweep the baby away uh, and that it's going, going to be different. So I think even though you are using the voice of the baby, it seems to me you're also considering all members of the triad. I am. And, you know, it's worth considering, remembering that at that time in the 90s, it was still a highly controversial idea uh, to have open adoptions. Mm -hmm. And I took no position in this film about that one way or the other. I only said, babies don't forget. So if we pretend that he should, that they should, and if we forget where the baby came from, a penalty will be paid. I also realized only in retrospect that the very idea of using the word transition when talking about adoption was at that time weird, controversial. People thought about adoption in those days mostly as a single event in time. And once the ink was dry, it was over. There was no transition from one place to another. There was just this glorious event of lovely people 
taking a baby into their bosom and into their home and loving him forever and forgetting about that, whatever that icky stuff was that happened before. So to think about that icky stuff that happened before is to, is to realize there has been a transition from this to that. To forget about the icky stuff before erases the whole idea of transition and just mm -hmm. makes it an event. And then it's yeah. over. Yes, yes. And, you know, before we went on live today, we were also talking about um, the fact that yesterday, as we were giving an overview of all of the videos, you talked about this one being, you know, a bit more innocuous, a, a, a little less provocative. And I thought when I listened to it again today, oh, no, no, it, it's quite provocative. And, and, and then he said, well, it is, but maybe not so much. So do you think you got bolder and bolder with these videos? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose that's true, but only in the sense, I hope, only in the sense that I was representing bolder and bolder statements from, from children. Yes. Because the, the behavior of children is of course their main microphone. That's how they tell us what's on their mind through what they do. And the behavior of children in the subsequent videos, uh, by definition, was bolder behavior. Yes. Children like this, for example, are not likely to um, squeeze birds to death in their adoptive home. Children who have experienced multiple loss as we see in the subsequent film, might well do exactly that. So it's a bolder voice we're listening to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so Nonetheless, the voice of these children, if we care to listen, is going to be pretty profound. And so let's go into that. Um, and, you know, we want to talk about the video um, and sharing the script that you wrote and, and some of it, you might actually be sharing um, parts of the script that you wrote, but also if there was an overall uh, or, or, or several overall ideas that you really wanted to bring out in this video. There are. Um, one of them uh, is actually in the video, so I'll just, I'll just read a couple of lines. Uh, yes, as I grow up, Please try very hard to let me be an everyday kid. And don't ever forget that I'm not. Forget all about where I came from. But don't ever forget where I came from. This is a tall order, isn't it? That's the, the child speaking to us about an outrageous um, need for someone to hold on to the look on his birth father's face on the day of the transition. For someone to know that his birth mother used methamphetamine, and that does not condemn her, but it might explain why years later, I, a child, am jumping around all over the place. And I don't have any memory of anything that happened in the uterus, of course, but my body does. And so my body now is jumping all over the place. And most people are satisfied with an, a diagnosis of that. He's ADHD, they say of me. 
I want you to see if there's anything else you can remember and can tell me about and help me understand about why my insides are jumping around. So I think it's a, it's a terrible thing to ask adoptive parents to do. Forget all about it, never forget it. Treat me like an everyday kid, never forget that I'm not. Mm -hmm. But right there is something that could bring up resistance, uh, possibly even anger that, you know, we talk about now um, in the field of adoption, the rainbows and unicorns adoption story that we, we want to keep them wonderful and positive. And so the part of your story of, you know, I'm a normal kid and, and that doesn't matter. And, you know, now you're here with us and we love you and it's all going to be good. Um, and that, that's typically the, the part of the story that we want to hang on to rather than, but also don't forget this other piece. So I would imagine that brought some reactions. It brought re uh, huge reactions. First of all, it was too big. It was too big a thing to ask of adoptive parents, many told me. Uh, people outside of open adoption were upset because this implied that somehow the original parents would live on, even though we're not going to see them, and we're never going to allow our child to see them, somehow this trout guy is asking us to let those folks live on in our home, in our family, in our life. And that's the very thing we didn't want to have happen. That's why we said no to open adoption. So it, it was a very difficult thing to ask families to do. Open adoption people, by the way, this is nothing for them. They knew this all along. And frankly, irrespective of what you think politically or, or in any other way about open adoption, they did have a leg up on us in this regard. They always knew that whatever decisions the parents made about having the birth parents continue to play a role in the life of the child, he was going to con they were going to continue to play a role in the life of the child, even if the child never sees them again. So proponents of open adoption understood this and I think we would be safe to say whether or not they could speak it, adopted persons knew this. They did. And they showed it to us, though only if we had ears to hear and eyes to see would we notice the behavior through which the child was speaking to us about what he remembers. Because, of course, he can't remember. We all, we all hold on to that idea that he can't possibly remember. So it's extremely inconvenient when he does and shows us in behavior. One child, um, I think I probably, you probably are familiar with this case because I've used it in teaching sometimes, um, adopted on the day of his birth by a mother who was um, at least overtly, profoundly ready to get rid of him said to the, to the adoptive mother on the day of the child's birth in the hospital room, oh, he's over there, you want him? In a gruff voice. The adoptive mother did want him, took him home, they adopted him, it was a wonderful family, 
but I was making a home visit one day uh, to help the family with some pretty difficult behaviors of this child. Uh, by this, this time, he was probably four. He already wore about half a dozen uh, diagnoses to describe the outrageous behavior he was exhibiting. No one ever seemed to give a moment's thought to the fact that his adoption or the circumstances of it might play a role. But during this home visit, this child got on all fours. Been a long time since he crawled, but he got on all fours, crawled over to his mother's crotch. She was sitting on a low footstool, burrowed his head into her crotch, and then began rocking back and forth, back and forth, uh, saying in a low voice, get out of here, get out of here. My view was, and it was very, very difficult for the birth, for the adoptive mother to tolerate such an idea. My view was that he was telling us what it felt like to be inside a uterus where the main agenda of the owner of the uterus was to get him gone. He felt hated and pushed away from the beginning. He didn't know those words. He didn't even understand those feelings, but he knew enough to know that they related somehow to his being unwanted. And at age four, he was still not only carrying that with him, but demonstrating it in his behavior with his adoptive mother. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I think in the uh, video, you do go on to talk about, you know, other behaviors that the children could have related to wanting to be born or, you know, you, you talk about uh, rolling, you know, wanting to be in a mummy sleeping bag or, or the, 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 these ways that um, maybe being rolled up in a rug uh, and wanting to be uh, lay on the rug or push me out of a space somehow, or I want to push myself out of a space. And these behaviors that, you know, someone could just say, oh, wow, he's just playing with a sleeping bag. By the way, not, not one of those examples that I use in the film comes from anywhere except stories told me by adoptive parents. Mm -hmm. And they, they're not designed, I don't repeat them to upset anybody. I only am trying to suggest the behavior of your adopted child not only has meaning, but your attachment to that child might be enhanced if he knew that you got it if he knew that you knew. For example, let's say that the child is uh, preoccupied with hide and seek. Almost every toddler on the planet likes to play hide and seek. Most birth and adoptive parents know that there's nothing pathological about hide and seek. It's part of development. But let's say the child uh, can't stop playing with it. Again, mommy, again, hide, go away or he'll hide and the mommy or daddy will walk around the house calling his name and he won't appear. And then he jumps out from behind. What if one of those times the child jumped out from the closet or wherever he was hiding and looked at the parent with a quizzical look, with a look of um, concern, ambivalence, 
uncertainty. And what if that adoptive parent at that moment said, said something very light? I don't mean to turn this into psychotherapy at all in the home, but something very light like, sometimes when you can't see me, you wonder if I'm going to come back. Or sometimes when you see me, you're not sure which mommy I am. And then they go back to play. All that's happened is that the child has had affirmed for him that his mother or his father sure does understand what he, what is inside of him. None of that is a cognitive process. He doesn't say, oh, thank goodness, my mommy knows just how I feel. It's an experience inside of him that knows that, that someone is allied with him enough to get it. You know, and I'm, I'm thinking about what, what you said earlier about, uh, because it, it just struck me this morning too, when I watched the film again, you, you never forget, you know, I'm a normal kid, but I'm, but I, I also, you don't say you're not a normal kid. I forget. It's much more eloquent than that, but you know, I'm watching that and, and I'm not, you know, an adoptive parent, so I'm not nearly as, or, or a birth parent or an adopted person. So I'm not nearly as emotionally invested, but I'm watching that and it just, it's almost like it makes my head hurt. Like, ah, oh, how do we hold both of that? And, um, you know, you're suggesting this, not an either or, but a both and that the, the adoptive parent can, can have a, 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 a close and connected relationship with the child and that doesn't mean we eliminate the history, we eliminate the past, we don't talk about it. That's so hard for people to hold both of those. Look, uh, among other things, look what it demands of the parent in respect to the parent's um, self-esteem, self-confidence as a parent. Yes. You have to be a pretty tough parent to tolerate the idea that your child has and everlastingly will have a link to somebody else way back when, even though that link never manifests in anything except occasional uh, non-specific longing. Maybe a longing that only shows up when the kitten dies, when he's 11, and he can't stop crying. It takes such a, such a parent to understand that that longing, that crying for the lost kitten could be in a context that, that life started off with loss. No big deal needs to be made out of it, just lots of hugging and no, none at all of the, well, goodness sakes, kittens just die, let's get over it. So it asks a lot of parents. Because also, too, um, if, like you're saying, it, it, it takes a lot of strength. If you have insecurities, you know, is this, is this baby I'm adopting going to love me? Is this, am I really going to be a real mother or a real father or, or whatever is going on there? Those feelings are so easily triggered by having to acknowledge there was someone else and that someone still matters, 
And I don't think it's pathological that parents not only want to be the real parent, they want to be the primary parent. They want to be, if they, they, if they had their druthers, they'd really prefer to be the only parent. And I, I get that. But that's not what you sign up for when you sign up to be an adoptive parent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I had um, someone I was supervising recently tell me that there was a child that lived several from birth to like two years uh, with some uh, a foster family, and then they were now adopted. And the the adoptive parents feel like contact with the previous families creating problems for their attachment with the child and they want the therapist to endorse cut off like removing these previous uh caregivers parent figures from the child's life because this is interfering with them forming an attachment with the child this came to mind um a 15-year-old girl I saw with her uh, adoptive mother. The adoptive mother's complaint was mostly that the girl uh, was a thief and was going to grow up to become a, a terrible convict, probably. Uh, but all the th all the things the child stole were things of the adoptive mother's, um, and it was driving the adoptive mother crazy. And she threatened all sorts of things, including that she would leave. Mm -hmm. The adopted child was a clever, funny, but stone cold with regard to the question, the issue of adoption, young girl. Uh huh. I adored her. She's one of the last patients I saw on my very, very last day of practice. And I have to admit that I, I wept for a bit after she and her mother left. Mm. But in that last session, having refused to talk about adoption or any of these longings or this crazy trout stuff that I was wanting us to talk about. She was fingering a hole in her jeans while sitting on my couch. It's right behind me here. Uh huh. And out of the hole in her jeans was a long, uh, not a long, but several inches long uh, string of material. And she was beginning to finger the string of material. And I said, you've got quite a string there. And she said, yeah, it goes way out. And I said, what, what, what do you mean it goes way out? She said, the string goes way out into the universe. I said, oh my goodness. Remember, this is our very last session. I said, oh my goodness, what, where does it go to? She said, it goes to the other world. By the way, this young, this young girl was adopted from Russia. Okay. She said, it goes out into the other world. I said, what's out there? She said, another place. And that was it. That was all that was ever said. And I knew the rules. I knew I dare not make some clever interpretation at that moment. But I did believe that she was finally acknowledging on our last day of therapy. I get it. I get it. There's a string that connects me forever to a place far on the other side of the world. I'm not gonna admit it, but I'll finger my jeans and I'll tell you about a string. Wow. It's fascinating. Um, 
so let me let me go uh, back to some things in the in the script here. Um, there's a part of it where you say, first of all, if you're going to do this thing, if you're going to have me go through this great huge change, then please let my birth mother and my birth father be sure. The last thing this world needs is another baby Jessica or baby Richard mess. I knew about both of them and who did finally win there. Make sure everybody gets a chance to say what they really want. I can't fill up that part of you that is empty or scared or lonely or feels like you might lose me. Actually, I probably could do some of those things, but I really don't want to and it's not my job. Please fill your own holes so you can be whole. And even just that first part where it says, if you're going to do this thing, have me go through this great huge change. Even that right there, I think is uh, so overlooked. That I don't think, as you were saying earlier, we think of this as this like event that we do, adoption, you know, um, not a transition or a process or a tremendous change for the baby. An event that should allow us as we walk out of the courtroom or wherever it is to slap our hands together and say, well, that's done. Thank gosh it's, it's over. And the point simply is that it's not. And what about this business you go into in, in various parts here of letting parents, uh, first parents, we're sometimes saying now birth parents, be sure and say goodbye. That also is running counterculture at the time in terms of the adoption community, I'm sure. But even now, there's the idea often, you know, don't let them see the baby, don't let them hold the baby, don't let them do anything that might cause them to change their mind about this. So you're suggesting the opposite. And I'm suggesting the opposite for a multitude of reasons, certainly to protect the baby, but also to protect the, the process. Because it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if you don't do these things that I'm talking about, if you don't let the, the first parents be sure, if you don't let there be some ritual of exchange and transition, then disrupted adoption is, the likelihood of that is increased dramatically. And I can't tell you the litter of bones and mess that I've tried to pick up for people years later after a disrupted adoption. So I don't want to have disrupted adoptions. Uh, I want birth parents to have a chance to change their mind but I'd like to have that chance to change their mind happen early rather than later and in a systematic way rather than a, a clumsy way that just, just tears adoptive parents to be apart. And by the way, when you start talking about this, you realize how broad the, the conversation is. When there is a disrupted ad adoption, because the original parents were not given the chance to be sure, and to say goodbye. So they then get a lawyer and try to stop the process, and it, it only comes to a head eight months later. Or even if it happens on the very day it was the adoption was supposed to happen. What often happens next is awful, which is that the Child Welfare Agency will say, oh my, 
Wasn't that awful? So sorry. Hey, I think I've got another one for you to the adoptive parents-to-be. And they then, in their sorrow, their unresolved sorrow, say, gosh, that sounds great. And so in a state of huge grief that they don't acknowledge, the adoptive parents take in a replacement child. And I can tell you from experience that that replacement child never stops being a replacement. That's a category in and of itself. Yes, yes. And so allowing um, birth parents to be at least as sure as they can be about the decision and, and able, you, you talk about being able to say goodbye and some kind of perhaps some sort of ritual. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because, you know, some of these, these topics, Michael, don't just relate here. <laughs> I mean, I, I think these are overarching things about endings and beginnings and our, our culture in particular, having a lack of ritual around some of these and how that gets us very muddled. That's probably putting it lightly muddled up about some of this and what say more about that. Oh my, you really opened a can of worms there because it's true. We have, what we would have to learn by looking, for example, at the Lakota Indian people, uh, Alaskan natives, uh, Aboriginal and Maori people from uh, New Zealand and Australia and so on. What we would have to learn from them about ritual and the absolute centrality of ritual in all of their losses and transitions, including, well, I won't get into that, but their the brilliance is it makes my mind spin. And when you compare what we do to what they do, their brilliance sticks out and our ignorance equally sticks out. We need markers. Now, I want, I want anybody who looks at this film to understand that does not imply that I'm being prescriptive about what the ritual should be. I'm not even saying every transition ought to involve the birth parents and the adoptive parents being in the same room with the child and there being a handover. I like that a lot. I think it's best, but it's not the only. And it's not that if you don't have that, you, you're really, you've really hurt somebody or things will turn out badly. I'm just saying there needs to be some sort of ritual, even if the adoptive parents need to do it on their own in a way that honors the, the first parents who are not even there. Or even if the uh, first parents need to do it on their own, maybe with a therapist or, or somebody else with the baby not even there. Yes. Somehow, somehow or another, th this thing needs to be marked. Yes, you say here, make sure everybody gets a chance to know what they really want. Make sure they get a chance to see me. Don't play that hide and seek game where everyone pretends that if you keep my birth mother and my birth father from looking at me, they will go away. They will be able to forget and they won't cause any trouble. Second, give my new mother and my new father, my adoptive parents, a chance to be pregnant for me. 
Let them get to know me while I'm still inside my birth mother. Let them learn about whether my birth father likes his pancakes crisp or fluffy and what my birth mother's favorite sport is and what both of them thought about me. So these new people can better know me when I come out. Yeah, that refers particularly to the then fairly rare but growing number of open adoptions where the adoptive family and the first family know each other through the pregnancy. Yes. And what we were beginning to learn is that such little details as I enumerate there about the pancakes and so on can become incredibly meaningful over the years. And it becomes one of those little non-psychotherapeutic, um, but enormously attachment enriching experiences where the adoptive mother says to the three-year-old, oh yeah, I remember how you like your pancakes, just like your first daddy did. Mm. That's it. No more conversation about it needs to happen, but the link between you and me, because you know I got you, and the link between you and your history is affirmed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here thinking about that. It, it seems simple, um, but it's, it's very hard, I think, for some of the reasons that we talked about sometimes to get adoptive parents or or you, 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 not just adoptive parents, it could be um, foster parents, it, it could be a variety of things, but it's very hard to get them to be able to say something like that, to not be threatened by that, or feel less than, or feel like you, you're asking me to do psychotherapy with the kid. I, you know, I find a lot of adoptive parents that have really great instincts but they think they can't do or say hardly anything unless the therapist is there, right? And I'm what I'm asking uh, adoptive parents to tolerate is the idea that there's nobility in being the one, in being one of the ones, the primary one who knows and holds your child's story for him or her. I think that's one of the most important things with birth children that there is in life. Birth children always love to know what happened, how they, their, their face fell in the chocolate cake when they were one and sitting in a high chair. Our two adopted kids, every year on their birthday, wanted to hear the whole story of what little we knew, which was mostly, what did my mom say at the handover? in Guatemala or Paraguay, where our two kids were from. And my wife, who was there and I wasn't, uh, could tell them all about it, even though it was just a snippet. And all that established was, I know where you came from, she was saying. I uphold your right to feel connected to it. And I honor your right every year on your birthday to ask me to tell it to you all over again. Hmm. Well, as we begin to, to wind down with this, Michael, uh, this, this uh, particular video, was there anything else specifically from the script that you could share with us? I did. I, I just wanted to, to, to read the words that I imagined the child was 
saying about the, the core um, part of his nature. Do not understand. I don't want listeners to imagine I'm saying this is the core pathology. It's not a pathology. It's just about how he sees things and how they affect him. So I write that I imagine the child would say, remember, the biggest thing in my life is to figure out how to make connections stick. And sometimes the way I know how to do that is to hold on to things that belong to people I care about. I don't mean to steal from you. I mean to take you with me. So you can imagine, I wrote that in the 90s and 20 years later, I was sitting with that little girl from Russia that I told you about who stole from her mother. And I'm trying to help her adoptive mother imagine, this is, this is stealing and I know it drives you nutty. And I know you're scared to death your child will turn out quite seriously messed up. But I wonder if you can imagine the possibility that she's stealing from you so she can take you with her. Even while she's being a, a standard adolescent girl saying to her mommy, adoptive or birth, most of the time, you're an idiot and I don't need you at all. She's still saying, but I steal your stuff. Hmm. Good. Thank, thank you for sharing this, those final thoughts um, about this excellent and helpful video that, that we're talking about today, uh, Gentle Transitions, uh, Newborn's View of Adoption, and even getting further into toddlerhood. And I'm looking forward to our discussion about the next video. Hey listeners, I have some exciting news for you. The book, Raising the Challenging Child, which has been co-authored with Debbie Reed and Wendy Lyons Sunshine, is available for pre-order and we wanna tell you where to get it. Please go to our website, raisingthechallengingchild.com for full details on how you can pre-order from your favorite bookseller. I know a lot of you are therapists and parents and really wanting to get the concepts of attachment theory and everything that we talk about in our podcast into practical nuggets for parents that you work with, children that you work with, even your own family. So we think this is just what you're going to be looking for. The book is filled with easy to implement, research-based, family-tested strategies. We hope you'll go out and pre-order today. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.